there's this very weird Pavlovian thing where you start the room and then you see the numbers go up and it like uh, sort of the worst. There's like this weird thing of journalism now where you just have analytics for everything. You can see like literally how many new subscribers you get for everything you write. And I don't like it, but I'm glad that we have 16 people in climbing for a Saturday noon event. I'm going to wait a couple minutes to see if we get more people and then I will begin. You just have to tweet everything endlessly these days. It's very, uh, it's very hard life. All right, let's see here. Okay, I'll just jump right in. I mean, people can go back and listen to the beginning if they want to, but um, this is Single Minded Conversations. This is my call-in show. I'm Jesse Single. I'm a journalist, blah, blah, blah. You can look me up. Um, there's a couple, few upcoming rooms you guys might be interested in tomorrow, Sunday, December 5th at 11 a.m. Eastern. What better time to get a huge crowd than Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern? A lot of people won't be awake on the West Coast, but I've got some travel. That's what I'm doing it. I'm going to talk about some of uh, youth gender dysphoria stuff. There's these new draft guidelines released for the assessment and treatment of, of uh, transgender and gender nonconforming adolescents by the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. If you follow this stuff, it's actually pretty interesting. So I'm just going to talk about that and hopefully take some questions. Day after that, Monday, December 6th, 5 p.m., be talking to Alice Gribben about her essay, The Empathy Racket. Really interesting uh, essay arguing that we shouldn't really expect art to promote empathy, that that's like a superficial understanding of what art is for and what it does or what it should be. Then on uh, December 14th, 6 p.m., I'll be talking to Batya Ungar-Sargon about her book, which is mostly about how journalism became a playground uh, for rich kids and why it matters. I'm self-conscious saying that from my Brooklyn apartment given my own upbringing. But anyway, please join me for those. You can find more info and links in the show notes. Uh, today, I just want to give like a quick spiel about why I'm skeptical of people who go out of their way to define themselves as heterodox or insert whatever language you want there, just, just that kind of label, um, journalists in particular. I'm not skeptical of the idea that heterodoxy can be quite important. I really like uh, Heterodox University. I've done a little bit of freelancing for them. I did a posted a panel at one of their conferences. The conferences were both blasts, the two I went to back when the world was normal. So the idea of having a space for academics to come together in defense of academic freedom and difficult conversations, that's really important, especially these days. And same deal for journalists. If there were a heterodox newsroom, I would be a founding member of it. But I think that's actually a different issue from whether an individual journalist chooses to take this on as a meaningful label to define their own work and their own mission. From what I've seen, if you do that, a few things happen. One is that it sort of quickly becomes your brand. You're, you're like tagged with it. This inevitably affects how people see your work, who you get feedback from, and the incentives you face in your day-to-day -day work. I recently did a, a newsletter article about this idea of audience capture, of, of responding to the segment of your audience that gives you the most feedback. And I, I think that can be dangerous because I don't necessarily think you should write or think solely on the basis of who you hear from the most. That's one of my gripes about all the analytics and, and how that can poison, uh, you know, your priorities. Um, 
but more importantly, I think when you're like announce yourself, like I'm heterodox, I think it sort of sets you up in this very intentional way in opposition to mainstream institutions as like a capital O outsider. And once you're an outsider, you start to hang out with other outsiders more and more. And then it turns out all the other outsiders have the same views. And then you become an insider. You become an insider among the outsiders. And it's just sort of another click. I've also seen some people's brains melt a little bit because of this. It's this thing where like in 2020, they're making fair points about certain shortcomings in mainstream media outlets. But by 2021, they're spreading like truly deranged conspiracy theories about the new world order. I just think that as soon as you say, like, I'm one of those guys outside the mainstream, I'm going to expose the mainstream, you're, you're setting yourself up a little bit and you're making that sort of process a little bit more likely. <clears throat> I guess I can't prove that scientifically, but I can say there seems to be a correlation between folks who proudly tout that label and uh, sort of go off the deep end a little bit. I guess part of my argument here, and, and this is maybe a point I haven't made loudly enough, is that journalism isn't any one thing and academia isn't any one thing. I've been as critical of progressive journalism as anyone. We just released uh, a podcast about the Jacob Blake shooting and how badly media botched that one. People will be mad, but whatever. Journalism's important and it will wither if it isn't critiqued. But that's pretty different from pretending the like the entire left of center media ecosystem is is this monolith on the brink of collapse. And I just think things are a lot more complicated than that. There are a lot of good working journalists and editors just trying to do their jobs. Every day, countless stories get assigned and reported out and filed and published, and they range from fine to good or great. There are definitely some systemic issues in certain newsrooms, particularly like the most elite ones. But I'm just not aware of like any such newsroom where where you know, less liberal people have won or where there isn't significant internal pushback or where I'm not hearing from editors and writers telling me that shit's fucked up there. I should have added that um, you should get in the queue if you want to ask me any questions. So there's no one in the queue now. So if as I'm talking, anything jumps out at you, you want to ask me about, get in the queue. Um, so, and overall, like, especially this year, I think we've seen some signs of genuine progress about some corners of the media getting back on the rails. I think that's just inevitable because it's capitalism. It's a suicidal business model to only publish stuff that really resonates with 10% of the country. Um, although I do think you can sometimes get away with that if the other 50% will cl- hate click it. So that might keep the bad stuff going longer. Um, I guess at the end of the day, I just sort of, I never want to become a crank. And I think it can be very tempting to become a crank because humans are a weird and frequently broken species. And if you look for the worst stuff your perceived enemies are doing, you will always find it. That's especially true in the age of social media where you can just hopscotch from outrage to outrage and get the impression that everything is irrevocably broken. But I don't think things are irrevocably broken. Like I, I can't pronounce that word. I don't think things are, are broken like entirely. I think things are fraying and cracked and and need some paint touch-ups, but that's always been the case, and it always will be, and a lot of this stuff comes in cycles. I just don't ever want to feel like my main goal is to show that I'm outside of everything and to scream at everyone that like the mainstream world is unsalvageable. I, I just think that's bad. would be bad for, for my career and for my brain and for my output as a journalist. Um, that's sort of all I'd, I'd prepared. I'm curious what people think, and we will start with Chris. I should say the buttons for uh, unmuting yourself are apparently it's very similar to the button to drop yourself from the call. So be careful about that. Chris, what's up? Okay. So um, I didn't really prepare much, but I just wanted to see uh, 
Did you ever uh, listen to Mike Pesca's The Gist? The show, yeah. I, not not regularly, but I heard a lot of it, and uh, I thought what happened to him at Slate was, was completely ridiculous. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was just going to say, he did an episode about uh, objectivity and journalism that I thought was really good, and it's pretty close to what you're saying, so... What was his, do you remember his main argument? Um, just that there's no true objectivity. Like, yeah. essentially, no matter what you do, you're going to find yourself being in some way, um, you know, biased. This came up in the episode we just recorded. It'll be out for everyone on Monday, but we, we connected coverage of the Jacob Blake shooting to Wesley Lowry's concept of um, moral clarity. So... His basic argument, and and you guys can just look up the Times piece he wrote about this, which went super viral, is that instead of seeking objectivity, we should seek moral clarity. And and there's legitimate examples of this, like like the language of officer-related shooting obfuscates the fact that an officer shot someone. It sort of it just makes it a little bit fuzzier. What what we argue in the podcast is that there was a lot of this with the Jacob Blake shooting, um, and there's just a lot of like basic facts about it people don't know. So. For example, people will say, outlets will say he was shot in front of his kids, which is true. He was shot in front of his kids because he was appeared to be trying to kidnap them. That is why the police intervened. And that, to yeah. me, is not really an act of moral clarity. If you describe it, if you just say that, which gives the impression that he was... If you say he was shot in front of his kids, you're trying to give the impression that it was unjustified, which is sort of a separate issue from the context of it. But um, like He was the one who put them in that situation and that's kind of left out of the yeah yeah and, and i just want to be clear that the cop the cops i mean I, I don't want to scoop the episode but the cops arrived knowing and saw him carrying a kid to the car and his his girlfriend or ex depending on who you ask saying that's my kid that's my car he's got them so uh anyway i went off on a little tangent there but um i will check out that pesca episode okay i'll see if i can find it and maybe i can email it to yeah you. email it or uh, send a message all right thanks all right. Colin is up next. The queue is empty. There are 40 of you. Someone else should get in the queue and say something to me. Colin, what's up? Hey, just a little update. The call-in app um, had an update. So now it's easier to see if you're about to hang up on yourself. Um, that so, is very useful. Yeah, that's that's a nice development. Um, I I think I, I agree with your premise um, that you don't want to sort of brand yourself as... Um, intentionally sort of a, uh, a a contrarian um so that you're just going to go against whatever the mainstream narrative is um but there's sort of an inherent difficulty in finding the people who are just swimming along the stream or those who are streaming swimming along the stream until the stream doesn't make sense um so for example uh, I I would consider I would consider Sam Harris to be quote unquote a, uh, a heterodox thinker. Yeah. Um, and just in, I just mean and, that in a descriptive way. I, I think. Yeah. A, 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 exactly. Exactly. Um, and he is kind of how I found you. Um, I found I found out about you generally through the the interview you did with him about your Atlantic piece. Um, so sometimes, sometimes sort of the the third category, if you want to call it that, of heterodoxy can be helpful in identifying 
um, sort of honest journalists. Of course, it can go way too far. I, I think you were referring to the, um, the Tim Pool example, which I, I think Tim Pool sometimes can hit on some truths and sometimes can just, you know, go way off the rails. And, and there's also James Lindsay's ongoing feud with the Auschwitz Memorial on Twitter, which I, <laughs> yeah, that, I, I don't know if I want to tell people they should check that out or not to, but <laughs> Yeah, that's a battle worth fighting. Definitely. Somebody how do you get to the point in your down. life where you're like, I'm going to quote retweet the Auschwitz Memorial angle? <laughs> <laughs> Time to do an inventory. Yeah, exactly. Probably. But, but yeah, I think I think there's a problem where there's just a, there are a lot of voices, and it can be kind of hard to to find people without using some sort of a a qualifier or identifier like heterodox. Yeah. Well, I guess the the, the my response to that would be. <laughs> If I just told you someone was considered a heterodox thinker, how useful would that label be? I'm thinking of like right, the, compared to yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm thinking of like the uh, intellectual dark web designation, which, as far as I'm concerned, mm. covers perfectly reasonable smart people like Sam Harris, who even when I disagree with him, I don't think he's crazy or lying or a crank, but also some like truly not so people. So maybe there's just this thing where whenever a label becomes popular or marketable, it will attract cranks and then the label itself becomes less useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think I agree with that. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Anything, uh, anything else Colin? Oh, no, you got a Quentin. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. Thanks, Quentin popped up right when the queue was angry. Thanks Colin. <laughs> yeah. All right. Quentin, how's it going? Hey, Jesse. <clears throat> so just, question for you um you know uh a lot of the the thinkers that i love to listen to um you know would probably be called heterodox um but i've been thinking recently about how much of them are also um uh, and i don't mean this in such a pejorative sense but are also parasitic in the sense that like you have you have like corporate media that like makes all these stories and fills the world with facts and also like embarrasses itself with its bias and then there's all these thinkers i love like you know the young turks or ben shapiro or breaking points or you and katie <clears throat> who um wouldn't exist if the corporate media wasn't there to to both bring some facts but also just to embarrass themselves yeah. what do you think about that dynamic between um the corporate media and the parasitic media again those are the people I love to listen to, but that's just the word I've been thinking of. That, no, that's the label I will embrace. I'm a parasite in so many ways. I mean, just ask my parents. Um, the it, that actually made me think of the last caller who who found out about me from Sam Harris. Um, I didn't. So after I wrote this Atlantic article about a the, the debate over gender dysphoric kids, which is has legitimately heated up since then. Like there's a lot going on among actual experts. It's a legitimate thing, but it was sort of ignored um, by mainstream outlets. I mean, it was a cover story in the Atlantic. I was very lucky. That's a completely mainstream outlet. But in terms of the response to it, just negative coverage uh, in mainstream outlets, the only positive stuff came from interviews with people like Sam Harris. So maybe that's how the heterodox world sort of reinforces itself. But I think what you're saying is exactly right. Like I, the extent to which my career was boosted, that was largely because I was seen as heterodox or whatever after that article came out and because people saw how angry the reaction was to it. And then they read the article itself or they heard me do an interview. If there'd just been like a mildly, calmly critical response to that article, um, 
I don't think it would have boosted my career so much. So I think you're absolutely right that the, the two sides are sort of playing off one another. And of course, especially with people like, um, you know, Ben Shapiro, who are hated by mainstream outlets, and I have a lot of political disagreement with him. Don't you think that they benefit immensely from him because they can just constantly write, you know, hate pieces about him? Yeah, amen. It does go both ways. It's it's kind of crazy how much of our media is just responding to the craziness of the other side. So, yeah. It's increasingly like beef-based. It's like literally just we hate Joe Rogan, we hate Ben Shapiro. So they, yeah, it's not always substantive. But um, anything else, Quentin? Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming. Zach, you are the next caller. Hello. Am I? Hey, how's it going, how's Zach? How's it going? Long time, first time. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I, um, this label of heterodox is valuable to a point because there's so much orthodoxy in the sort of mainstream media. And then when you when you dig into it, and you find out that they're obfuscating. I just listened to the uh, Jacob Blake thing because um, I was sort of, I mean, I've, I've sort of started off in this heterodox space again with Sam Harris and, and um, you know, Breaking Points and, and you and Katie. And now it's like I'm listening to, like, I'm, <laughs> I, just, I just realized I was listening to the commentary pod, daily podcast, which I think is pretty good, but it's like, these are concerned. It's like I'm not a neocon, but like I can't find any liberals who I feel like they're being more honest. Uh, they obviously have their perspective, but I know that and I can see yeah. it and I can judge it. But when I, I'm, I've been trying to find like a lefty, uh, you know, person who can make the best case for these points because when I go to these places, like, and I try, I I heard a couple of things with Brianna. Uh, um, Joy Gray, the Bad Faith podcast, and then um, yeah. I thought she was generally pretty good. And I listened to some of them, and they were, and she had this woman on talking about the Jacob Blake, and it was just all over. It's like they didn't even listen to the case, or or, or they yeah. didn't even. And it's like this is why nobody trusts you because you have somebody saying emphatically that they shot him fourteen times in the back, five or six times in the podcast. Right. And then that's not even close to the truth. It's and and they're just kind of joking about it in this real condescending way. And it's like I, I don't find I find that, that much more on the left side of the ledger. It's just like they just laugh yeah. when people say stuff. And then they, they go on to tell, you know, frankly, misinformation and, and base their entire judgment on that. Like it's really frustrating because, you know, I'm not trying to be, <laughs> become a conservative again, but it's like... No, no, dude, I, I had the same thing happen where, like, I, I thought one of the best treatments trying to unpack what happened in Loudoun County, um, you know, the CRT fight, this supposed controversy involving the trans bathroom policy, it, it, the Dispatch did a podcast on it where they interviewed this dad who was leading mm-hmm. the anti-CRT experts, who I had a ton of political disagreement with. But he actually laid out the timeline of events. But then if you watched MSNBC, it's like, well, mm-hmm. Loudoun County has white supremacist parents and they voted because of racism. But if you listen to the Dispatch podcast, you get a much more um, comprehensive view of how this started with dissatisfaction over schools not reopening and the culture war stuff just piggybacked on that. 
it's hard. I will say uh, the New York Times eventually did a two-part daily series on, on that kind of stuff. So you need a, the problem is more and more you need to pick through so much garbage to find the good journalism. That's what worries mm-hmm. me. But, but I'm with you. Right? I never thought I'd be in a position where it's like, I, I think the dispatch, um, I mean, I, I really like David French. I'm not meaning to be pejorative, but I would never have thought I'd have to go to the dispatch to find the best reporting on that. And as I've said, on the issue, one of the issues I'm most familiar with, which is the youth GD stuff, there's often times where the Federalists, and I hate to say this, I don't like the Federalists, I'm very opposed to their project, but where they will do overall a better job of covering certain aspects of this controversy than the New York Times. And that is that is shocking to me. And I think that, like you're saying, that's driving the market for quote-unquote heterodoxy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I agree. It can go. I mean, it's, it's a real high white rat because you can go sort of down the James Lindsay route, which... You know, he did have. I, I I feel like he's great in when he's, um, you know, talking about the issues. But his, I mean, his, you know, you know, you know. I don't. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, I, I, I think there's a, I think there's a market who for people who will sometimes criticize some of the same academic trends Lindsay's criticizing, but without being crazy and without oversimplifying things. And it seems like he almost developed an anti woke character persona online. Um, that mirrors all the the weirdness of wokeness, and that he just like became the character. It's it's very strange, but um, yeah. And his 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 podcast is such a stark relief to his Twitter persona too. I don't know if you listen to his podcast, but it's like very dry and academic. Maybe he's gotten a little bit more colorful, but like frankly, his Twitter persona has has uh, turned me off of even listening <laughs> yeah. to the, the podcast too much anymore. But I, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any? Do you have any kind of? Like I said, I, I heard Brianna. I, I feel like she's better when she's on with people with opposing viewpoints. But I don't know. Yeah. Do you have uh, somebody else you kind of check out for the other side? Because I feel like yeah, I mean, most I'm, of the time I'm ending up. But oh uh, yeah, just kind of like from a left perspective. I mean, like oh people. On, I mean, I think ben, I feel like it's good. Uh, ben Burgess, B U R G I S. He's, uh-huh, he's a socialist yeah. philosopher um, who does. He's like he wrote a whole book about how we should debate stuff, which is unfortunately controversial. And then. Everyone, everyone says this, but Freddie DeBoer is a great essayist who's very skeptical of like, you know, he's he's like a hardcore socialist. Uh, and then Matt Brunig does he doesn't write about it much, but when he does write about culture, like if you look at Matt Brunig on the concept of identitarian deference, he just nails it. I wish he'd write about that stuff more. So those are a few of mm-hmm. of my voices. Um, I do want to uh, thank you for the call, Zach. I want to get okay. Andrew on. All right, thank you. Andrew, what is up, my friend? Hey, Jesse, how are you? Good, how are you? Uh, so one of the things um, I, I've kind of seen as a theme in this conversation um, and across all conversations is sort of this um, loss of the idea that the universe is not like weaving a grand political narrative. Um, <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah. people say like, you know, who do you see on the left perspective or who do you see on the right perspective who's looking at this well? I mean, both of those things, there's a little bit of having a foregone conclusion and then selectively weeding facts together to to make it sound like a story. Um, And I just wonder what your thoughts are on that. And do you see anybody um, out there? And and I I think you and Katie actually are are really great on this, um, which is why I listen to you guys who who are just aware that, you know, this isn't a grand narrative being written by some author somewhere. It's just stuff happening. 
Well, I just want to make sure I can answer the question. Explain a bit more by what what um, what, what you're asking me to respond to. Um, so I, I guess it's the consumption of like uh, narrative of, uh, itself over facts. So like one of my priors is yeah. until I can find something um, like a confounder that that makes a story seem just bizarre instead of like oh you know the Republicans had it or the Democrats had it. Um, I probably don't know enough about the story yet. Uh, for instance, um, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, and uh, this is 20 years ago now, so that you may not know about this, but um, there was this big fight about the spotted owl. Uh, <laughs> Didn't the spotted owl become sort of a punchline for some uh, fights about environmental policy? Uh, yes, yes. So, well, if you actually had, had studied it and looked at it, um, and, and this is non-controversial anymore, I think only so long as it doesn't become a, a wider public uh, discussion. That the spotted owl is going extinct because of a different technological reason, which is, you know, people moving all over the place cause cause the barred owl to come into the region and start displacing the owl. But those fucking barred owls, uh, man, I don't trust that, them. That, that's such a less satisfying story. Um, so I was part of the community as like a child. I think I was only like in first grade when this started happening, um, where I mean, people lost their jobs. And uh, I mean, the economic devastation was just awful because people felt the need to impose a story about environmentalism over like a factual account. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So do you, do you see that as a problem today? Do you see that as a thing that's even... Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's, I mean again, I'll just, just because it's on my mind, the Blake thing is a really good example where it's like <sighs> the narrative is, is white supremacy. He was shot because of white supremacy and you will really just see people boil it down to that and there's obviously some cases where that's the best explanation, but policing is complicated and this incident was complicated. And to my mind, in much the same way that if you want to extract a meaning from the Kyle Rittenhouse thing, you should look at things like gun laws or self-defense laws. If you want to extract meaning from the Jacob Blake case, you should look at I, anyone who listens to the podcast will see that I concluded I'm, it's unclear what they could have done differently, but you could in theory change the rules about like lethal use of force or whether you have to arrest people who have open warrants. The problem is as soon as you do that and you get into the muck of the real world, you're saying, okay, so we're going to change the local police regulations so that if cops encounter a wanted rapist or a wanted domestic abuser, they don't have to take him into custody. They can just let him go. And then there'd be a huge outcry to that. So I think part of the reason so many pundits and others retreat to the grand narratives, it's like, who would be in favor of white supremacy if that was really the explanation here versus if you have to actually make an argument about the actual facts, people might disagree with you. You might face trade-offs and it's just a little bit less uh, comfortable. If that makes sense. It, it, it does. And I'm, I'm wondering, do, do you have any thoughts on, on what the incentives are now to be able to retreat into those kind of purely factual accounts? Because um, I like, I know that you, are a self-hating Twitter user, <laughs> if I can, if I can say that term. But it, it seems like every incentive now is just to make a bunch of noise and yeah. jump to conclusions. And like James Lindsay, to your point, like he almost reminds me of Andrew Dice Clay, where he started a performance <laughs> that was so successful, he now just became the character, even like right. in his own personal thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, the the incentives are are a mix. I mean, obviously, outlets think they are supposed to do these oversimplified narratives where. It's just white supremacy, um, stuff like that. Other themes too. I, I don't know. Part of it is internal pressure. So there's like real pressure within some newsrooms from some younger staffers to look at the world in a more oversimplified way. I mean, that's what I, 
while I agreed in theory with Wesley Lowry's um, moral clarity concept, when you see it, ha- how it's practiced, it literally, it often means things like calling more people racist or, or making value judgments. I don't think it's practiced the way he preached it. Um, it's weird. It's obviously the case that outlets that don't do that, that tell the full story, get rewarded for, for it. I, my, my stuff is going well because I will write the piece saying, let's look at what actually happened in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. And I, I think the episode we're releasing Monday is going to get a lot of attention. So it's a very weird thing where I think a lot of outlets are leaving money on the table because they don't want to make Twitter bad, uh, mad. They don't want to make their young staffers bad. It's sort of similar to what's going on with organizations like the ACLU, where they'll put out these statements that are, I mean, if I'm a 60-year-old longtime donor to the ACLU, I can't even understand half the words they use anymore. But I think there's just this faddishness and this um, people paying too much attention to very young, very passionate people online that I think is maybe leading to some organizational drift, if that makes sense. It, it, it does. Um, and I, I definitely see that. Um, and and I, I know I'm taking up a, a huge amount of time here, so I'll, I'll try to wrap things up. But um, uh, uh, there's definitely something in the young crowd that's different, um, I think, structurally because of social media or the sort of passion of, you know, uh, this is the way I always phrase this, where people seem to think that just desiring things to be better and not worse is enough of a plan to actually have outcomes to be better yeah. and not worse. Um, it, it's, it's I'm not, I'm not sure how against... new that is. I, I do think social media makes it much easier for people with those views yeah, to get attention. Right. And I think I think it happens because the older generation proportionate to that younger generation is not in social media to create a confounding narrative. Yeah. So the, organizationally, the younger people have a, a strategic advantage there. Um, and this is just sort of a funny thing. Um, uh, one of the things I always kind of bring up to, to snap people out of this from my personal experience Um I don't know. There's no fun way to segue to this. Or I, I think this is funny. Uh, it wasn't at the time, but it's funny now in retrospect. Like my stepfather, um, like really loved Hitler. Uh, like not ironically, would talk great about him all the time. <laughs> Holy but, shit! But here's here's the, here's the next confounding part of that. What ethnicity do you think my stepfather is based on that comment? Hitler is weirdly popular among like some Indian people. Was he Indian? Yeah, uh, he was Micronesian. Oh, there we go. Yeah, man. So, <laughs> people people yeah. are very interesting. Yeah, it's um, it, it's one of those things where I, I, I always bring that up. Um, if I know someone well enough to sort of drive home that point that like, th- this is not, this is not a story being written by a single author somewhere that's supposed to make sense. It's, it's, it's much more chaotic than that, but th- thank you for all you do. And, and Kate. Of course. Thanks, Andrew. Colin, do you mind if I bump you to the back of the queue just to take a couple of people who haven't talked yet? And then if there's time, uh, you can go again. Um, from Q, Andrew. Thank you, Colin. Pat, what's up? Uh, hey, Jesse, uh, what's going on? Um, I'm kind of commenting on the previous caller who mentioned something about like not being able to find sources that really break down these political slash media events like honestly. So he says he ended up on like the commentary podcast while not being a man of like the right at all. Well, it's funny he says that because like it's a, a podcast I do listen to every day and have for a while. But I've also found myself reading, you know, communists like Freddie DeBoer based on your references to him and people from all over the spectrum who seem to have finally just start not 
not caring about political like points or winning at all, but really just kind of finding true ideas and adopting like true beliefs, which is what I think the reason is to engage in political media and like cultural commentary in general. So basically my question is that like ideological diverse group of people that would, I would say include yourself and you know people like Jonathan Haidt and like a, a whole like network of people. Would that ever be a liable political constituency that sort of transcends like a, a normal partisan divide? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's an interesting question. I, I think the answer is no, just because there are those those huge political differences between what you know Freddie DeBoer wants and what I don't know David French wants. And at the point of actually making policy, you'd have to address that. But but I think the really interesting nugget to extract from your point is that there are sensibilities and personality characteristics that transcend ideology. So um, I'm muting you for a minute just because there's there's car noise, but I'll unmute you in a second. There we go. Thank you for muting. Um, there's a concept called need for cognitive closure in psychology, and it basically measures the extent to which you need the world to be a simple good and evil place without shades of gray. And I think what a lot of quote unquote heterodox thinkers have in common is that we'd like to think the world has a lot of shades of gray. And we get criticized for that. For so, so we're gonna when the podcast episode comes out, we'll say, "How could you defend the cops in the Blake shooting?" Because it's supposed to be a very black and white case. No, no pun intended. So, I think when you look at all the call, the figures you mentioned who range from Freddie DeBoer to some folks on the right, I think that's what they share in common: is they don't have much need for cognitive closure. They're often with some exceptions, including Freddie, who, who sometimes slips up, as do I, they're often willing to accept nuance and to not go along with the tribe. So I think that's a shared personality characteristic or sensibility, but that it, it wouldn't work as a, it would make a great magazine, but it wouldn't work as a political constituency because they have very different uh, preferences with how the, the world should be ordered. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And um, I'm just sort of, yeah, that would be a magazine I read that ranged from John Podoritz to Matt Brunig to Freddie DeBoer. I think that'd be fantastic. But um, I guess I'm also just wondering what, and you might not have an answer because I don't, what, what the implications are for when that sort of thinking maybe kind of returns to like influence. I don't know, just like the parties being like undermined or weakened when all of the real intellectual work isn't done in a neatly partisan way, if that makes sense. I don't know how to flesh that out. But. Yeah, Colin, by the way, if you want to jump back in the queue, Colin, I'll, I'll take you as the last caller because no one else is in there. There we go. Um, so I don't know if it was ever the case that like partisan politics was, was done with nuance and care. So I think at the end of the day, on the Democratic side in particular, the Democratic Party understands that their median voter is not you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez supporter, and she's talented in many ways. I don't want to deny that. So I just think as an electoral strategy, especially given how many swing districts they need and how many swing voters they need, just just the, the electoral map is is a clusterfuck for them. And they're, they're not going to be able to go fully in the direction of like what people in my neighborhood of Brooklyn believe. Uh, it's just not going to work. And I think you've already seen a retreat in liberal institutions from like the fad over police abolition and police defunding and, and Joe Biden, I know some people think that uh, he's like very woke or radical, but he just isn't. He does these, these sort of gestures, but, but every politician panders, he's doing the same thing politicians used to do when they would pretend to be deeply outraged by like gay marriage or rap music. He's just doing it in a woke direction. So 
I think on the Democratic side, at least, it's just who the electorate is. It, 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 they're never going to be able to get that radical. I think things are a little bit different on the right because I think their Republican politicians and sort of the D.C. consultancy class are, I think, less to the right of the average Republican voter. So I think it's more complicated there. But um, I think that's probably the most insightful answer I could give you. Very insightful. And before I hang up, I'll just take back the fact that I didn't mean to say the most serious intellectual work is dying on a partisan basis. But I guess I'm trying to untangle too many things uh, while I'm driving here at once. So let me just shout out my friend Austin, (laughs) who I just referred to this podcast and I saw in the audience. And um, I'll uh, thanks again, Jesse. You'll you'll hear from me again. Thank you, Pat. And welcome, Austin. Yeah, I, when I said most insightful answer, I could give him. I didn't mean that it was particularly insightful. I meant most insightful given that I need coffee and that I'm just not very smart uh, in general. Wait, Colin, ignore that invite. I want to make you the next caller. There we go. Hey, Jesse. Hey. So not only am I double dipping, I'm just going to briefly um, piggyback and say um, Zach brought up the Brianna Joy Gray interview. Um, if if nobody's listened to that and you just want to get your heart rate up, um, I highly recommend it about the Kyle Rittenhouse, <laughs> about the Kyle Rittenhouse um, case. Uh, it was recorded when it was ongoing, but during jury deliberation, I believe. Um, but that's just an aside. What, what I, what I really wanted to say was um, with some of the, the heterodox points, um, I think I had just listened to your Jacob Blake uh, bar pod episode and I thought it was fantastic. I, I, Thank you. I, I had um, read some of the, not the uh, longer report. One of those reports was like 80 pages and I just, you know, tapped out after a little bit, but um, some of the information wasn't new to me because you, ha- you had recommended reading those reports, I think in one of your sub stacks. Um, but just the way you broke it down was fantastic in sort of uh, debunking some of the the media narratives. But I think this is sort of a larger critique of our media system right now where honest and thoughtful reporting has to be done in order to undo the wrongs of reporting Wow. I know it's horrible. Yeah, I, I, well, was, I was like mad as I was putting that. The episode sort of, I, I got obsessed with it. I'm so lucky I get to do this for a living, but the episode destroyed my week because I just needed to, mm-hmm. I scripted it out more than any other podcast episode I'd done and did more fact checking. But it, it, it's, it's infuriating mm-hmm. that I, just some schmuck, am doing, I say better in the sense that I'm stepping over a one inch bar. I'm doing a better job than the Washington Post in just telling people what happened. That That's, Sorry, I'm just echoing back to you what you're saying, but that's a sign of a disastrous media ecosystem. Well, absolutely. And and the problem with it is like when you actually tell when you actually break down and tell the truth truth of the story, yeah, it, it was, you know, not a pleasant event, but there really wasn't there really wasn't much news to it outside of what could have been a local story whereas you there are stories that could be could have impact like substantial impact or have policy implications like the the johnny hurley shooting yep um where it just really doesn't get a whole lot of mainstream traction and i think it's because it probably has something to do with the identity of the victim uh, of the situation it is it's probably less outrageous but it points to 
some issues with policing, some issues with um, open carry in in ways that really the the whole Kenosha mess from start to finish might not. But there isn't the outrage component, and then there are reporters such such as yourself that have to sort of go back and correct what what uh, sort of mainstream institutions are doing. <laughs> It's a little disturbing. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Colin. That might be a, a good note to wrap up on. But uh, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I hope the episode makes a difference, but it's sort of pathetic. We put this right in the title. That is pathetic. We had to do a, a debunking episode about the Jacob Blake shooting in December of 2021. But um, yeah, thank you, Colin. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, um, All right. Well, look, thank you guys for coming. I would just say... Um, if you think that this show is off to a good start and that you enjoy listening and participating, the thing you can do to help the most is to tell other people about it. This is a weird thing where a bunch of us who were invited to do these shows are starting from scratch on a new platform. We need to build up a new audience. We need to do it in this weird situation where it's only Apple for now, which makes it a little bit challenging. So do me a favor and tell a friend if you like it. And you can always message me with uh, show ideas and remember because it's a weird week for me and there's a lot of travel. I'm doing another one tomorrow, 11 a.m. on the gender dysphoria stuff, which I, I hope will be interesting and useful. And then again on Monday, and then hopefully I'll get a little break. But I, I really like doing these. It's been a lot of fun so far. And if people didn't show up to the rooms, it wouldn't be fun. It would just me be me talking to myself. So thank you guys so much for uh, attending. And like I said, feel free to reach out. Have a good weekend.